Masters in Comics. In these podcasts, we will be chatting to comics creators and getting a unique insight into the comics industry. Today, we're chatting with Pat Mills. Welcome, uh, Pat Mills, to the Masters in Comics podcast. Uh, I wonder if you would maybe like to begin by talking about your days in Dundee. Yeah, uh, very happy memories of them. Um, I, I worked for uh, DC Thompson's for uh, a year or so before going freelance. And uh, I worked mainly on um, uh, um, a girl's uh, romance uh, weekly called Romeo, which was like a kind of uh, poor relation of Jackie. And, um, yeah, I mean, the, the whole experience was extraordinary. And I, I'm trying to think how best to sum it up. Um, I, I think by saying that um, there is a love of popular culture uh, at DC Thompson's uh, in Dundee. And, and I think in Scotland generally. And it's, it doesn't have the same intensity uh, in England, in, in my experience, at least. So, you know, you, you, you're, you're suddenly confronted with all these astonishing uh, magazines that uh, uh, normally you, 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 would never, you would never come across. Like, uh, for example, one of my uh, uh, first jobs uh, before moving on to Romeo was uh, uh, to read manuscripts for... Um, uh, people's friend. Uh, so I suppose they'd be kind of uh, Mills and Boone type things and so on. And the, the thing is, in in journalism generally, there's, there's, there's a lot of snobbishness uh, towards popular culture. And uh, probably before I um, uh, went, went to DC Thompson's, I was probably as guilty of that as, as, as anyone. You know, I sort of go to these very middle class plays and, you know, read, uh, you know, only sort of, uh, you know, literature and so on. But once I kind of embraced this uh, popular culture, I, I really got into it and I saw how effective it, it, it is and uh, also how valid it is. It's really got something to say uh, that what you might call uh, trying to find a label for it, uh, more middle-class culture, uh, doesn't have as much to offer. And, and the sales of these publications, um, certainly when I was uh, there in the uh, early 70s, um, were pretty uh, pretty amazing. I, I think, I don't know what Jackie sold, but I, I have a feeling it was maybe half a million or something, something crazy like that. They're reaching really large audiences. And, and therefore... Uh, they're important. And uh, so I, I loved all that. And in particular, uh, and it would be very hard to put this in a bottle and distill it and say what it is, but I, I particularly loved as uh, essentially I, I see myself as Irish and uh, I particularly love the kind of very Scottish sense of humour and this very Scottish way of of doing things, which, as I say, is very hard to identify, but you can see it in a lot of the, the different publications, the, a kind of dual sense of humour, shall we say. So what was it like working in, in that famous building in, in Meadowside? We, we've just uh, um, been lucky enough to, to be in the, the renovated building, but what was it like back when you were working in that, that building? Well, I mean, it's, it's, it's a wonderful memory because we're talking about the uh, uh, what I believe was known at the time as uh, the Red Lubyanka, right? 
Uh, and it was opposite the, um, uh, I think, a kind of medieval graveyard. <laughs> and uh, with over the other side um, from the Red Lubyanka, uh, um, the public library, which was built like a like a like a fairy tale castle, so um, you know it is a great place to come to work in the morning. And inside, everything is uh, you know it's obviously Edwardian, so you know it's polished wood, lots of brass, and and, and you know and all the rest of it. So yeah, it, it was a little bit like stepping back in time, uh, you know, go, going to this. Uh, uh, this place and um, uh, er everyone was uh, very friendly and uh, I, I think uh, trying to identify something that perhaps uh, wouldn't happen today um, either probably because we were all being paid such low wages or for or for whatever reason but there was a leisurely quality about everything so for example on Romeo uh, which is a weekly uh, magazine stroke comic, there would have been one, two, three, I, I don't know, some seven people maybe uh, on staff. Uh, now, if you compare that to 2000 AD and uh, the Judge Dredd magazine, which are both produced by one guy, Matt Smith. Uh, so, you know, that, that, that's an incredible difference. And what it means is, uh, that there is time for what Mike McMahon uh, referred to, and it's, it, it's, it's a great piece of advice to anyone in the creative industry, um, uh, staring out the window time. <laughs> you just, you know, I mean, can you, is that possible in today's world? I think not. So I maybe just maybe I just got in at the at the end of an era. I mean, it sounds actually more Victorian than than twentieth century, doesn't it? Um, so yeah, there was time. So for example, one of the things you might do in the mornings, the 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 newspapers were passed around you. You know, in other words, you so you looked at the uh, uh, the Daily Mirror, the Express. I think it was the Sketch or whatever. You very generally tabloids because we were looking for stories and angles that could be used in the magazine. And uh, so, you you know, and if you saw something you liked, you, you, you cut it out and you keep it in a scrapbook. And then later you say to the editor, there was this thing in the, the, the Daily Mirror where Gene Rook was saying this, this and this. Why don't we do a feature like so-and-so? And, -so? and, um, uh, and, you know, that process obviously is, is, is quite leisurely. I, 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 I rather fear that uh, today's magazine journalists uh, wouldn't be given that luxury. And uh, it's great because you really have time to reflect on things and think about them. I think in today's world, uh, that whole process would have to be done on your own time. <laughs> Yeah, it doesn't really fit into the spreadsheet that I think, you know, uh, looking at the window time, it's hard to, to account for. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you put that down and uh, try and get that one past your bosses. Yeah. So I, I and all that 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 kind of approach, which must have manifested itself in in many other ways that I probably wouldn't be aware of, um, uh, created um, uh, a very paternal society um, uh, in for the most part, in the best sense of the word. So could you tell us a little bit about the famous shed uh, that you hatched a lot of the, the, the plans uh, for world domination in? 
Yeah, I mean, how we uh, how we survive that, I don't know. I think I think as we all get older, you, you think, how the hell did I do that? So, uh, and of course, the answer, as with anything in life, is you, you do it because you ain't got no choices. Uh, so, what what happened was there was a garden shed. Um, uh, uh, j just outside uh, the, the the cottage where we lived, and so um, I started freelance writing there. And uh, John Wagner, uh, he of Judge Dread, uh, came to join me, and we, uh, we we were sort of working on and off there for a bit. And I my recollection is that we started in the winter, and I guess being a shed and there being two of us, <laughs> a natural body heat kept us warm. But we, my, my recollection is we, we had uh, uh, a foul paraffin lamp for, for, for lighting, uh, which gave off, I think, green fumes or something. And we'd actually have to go out for air breaks and things. And I mean, it's a really, really stupid thing to do. But I mean, if you, if you haven't got any money, <laughs> well, you know, it's not such a stupid thing to do. So uh, that was where we started. And then as, um, as time went by, got an electric cable from the cottage to run into the shed so you ended up with a heater and a desk and and so on and um i went freelance first and then john uh, joined me um some few months later and um uh, but because we were getting loads and loads of work uh, i mean that was the extraordinary thing um every market that we uh, attempted to break into um uh, we succeeded now, perhaps looking back, it was because, um, you know, there, 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 was this, there was this kind of, if you like, resistance to popular culture. Many people didn't want to write comics. They didn't want to, uh, it wasn't just comics I was writing. I was writing um, uh, romantic text uh, for a magazine like called uh, Lover. So I, you know, <laughs> you know <laughs> writing about my my bad boyfriend and all that kind of stuff. Um, but um, I like to think that it wasn't just because there was a huge demand. Because I mean, not everybody, uh, you know, cracked it. And I think it probably was because John and I <laughs> combined made the most formidable critics of each other's work. <laughs> so, no, that's not right. No, that's not right either. <laughs> yeah. No, we need something better. I, I think for the most part, um, we were both quite um, quite passionate about popular culture, and I, I think we probably both still are. Um, uh, John introduced me to all kinds of things that, uh, uh, like Star Trek, for instance. He said, oh, we've got to get home from work in time to watch Star Trek. And I said, well, what, what, what's Star Trek? Uh, so he explained, and I said, "Well, that doesn't sound very good." He said, "Oh no, you've got to see this. This is important." <laughs> you know, so, um, so I, I think we kind of, um, um, you know, we kind of really uh, filtered each other's uh, work and got things, uh, got things, and we were very much on the same page. And as much as we, uh, we had a kind of, um, uh, I, I suppose, a kind of counterculture uh, attitude. Uh, to to many things and, and therefore it could be quite seditious and that's always been um, uh, a remarkable thing about uh, DC Thompson's in particular is uh, you know uh, 
even their big biggest fans, I think, would say that they they certainly were quite an authoritarian uh, sort of uh, company, and yet it kind of bred this wonderful Scottish sedition. Uh, and I think John Wagner was as good an example of that as, as any. And uh, so, uh, but it, it wasn't just us. I mean, it was all over the place, you know, just minor stuff. Uh, the, the example uh, I always quote, there's probably better ones. Um, so you have uh, a story in Hotspur um, called uh, the, the Wooden Sheriff of Skeeter Creek. Uh, which, if you're um, if you're English and listening to this, uh, you need to know it means the wooden sheriff of Shit Creek, you know. And uh, um, there was a lot of that going on uh, all the time. Probably loads of it I'm not even aware of. Uh, and in fact, I, I you know uh, I, I I tried to sort of incorporate that in my uh, affectionate parody of um, uh, of Dundee with. Uh, Angus, Angus and Angus of uh, Aberdeen in, in the novel series, uh, Read Them and Weep. Um, but I mean, for the most part, it's really uh, a very, uh, uh, a very affectionate uh, portrayal of, of all that. So there's John and I, we're in the shed, um, <laughs> playing indoor football at three o'clock in the morning, uh, killing wasps, feeding them to a spider, uh, and writing, uh, and writing uh, reams and reams and reams of stuff, and I think uh, I think after John went freelance, my guess is I think uh, we stuck it out for six months together, which if you consider as two two guys who are both pretty opinionated and uh, could possibly be classified as alpha males, <laughs> six months of the garden shed is. Pretty remarkable. It's a it's a great tribute to both our tolerances of each other. <laughs> Apparently, the shed is still there. We've actually got a photograph of it um, at the university. I think maybe it, it's, it's it needs a blue plaque on the outside. You know, <laughs> it's, it's that significant, you know. <laughs> so, so making a jump then from from DC Thompson's to IPC was that was that a big jump in like creatively as well? So, was there a different way that you would tackle? the scripts or were you just taking what you'd kind of picked up at DC Thompson's and transposing it to, to slightly different market? Well, I, I think the, and it, it may even be true today, uh, but it was certainly true at that time that if you'd worked at DC Thompson's, it was like working for the BBC. So, you know, if, if someone from the BBC goes to, I don't know, ITV, it's like, ah, oh, you know, he was at the BBC, so he must be good. And, and that's really what it was like, um, where from IPC's point of view, all the movers and shakers, all the people who were creating change in IPC had come from DC Thompson's. There's a whole spectrum of them, uh, invariably Scottish, I think. I think that's probably the only... Anglo-Irishman there, you know. Um, uh, but yeah, uh, for example, uh, Malcolm Shaw, uh, John Purdy, um, and um, and many others. Um, and uh, so there was there was this respect for DC Thompsons at IPC, and and I suppose it could be best summed up as uh, they got a tr you know we got a training at DC Thompsons that wasn't available. 
uh, and wasn't as refined or as brutal <laughs> in IPC. So they knew we knew what we were doing. And, uh, you know, there was, there was an adjustment to IPC. And I remember certainly on the boys' side of things and on the humour side, uh, John and I were both singularly depressed by it. There's no other way to put it. And, and I remember we, we, we came down by sleeper uh, to, to, to talk to the people on the, on the boys' side and on the girls' side. I'll come on to that in a moment. But on the boys' side, it was like, oh, God, what have we got ourselves into? And uh, that's why, for instance, I mean, to give you an example of that, the humour comics uh, from DC Thompson's, uh, and I've written about this recently in uh, the forthcoming um, UK comic review. Um, they, they, were, um, they were often works of art. Sparky, for example, was an absolute work of art. <coughs> and, uh, uh, you know, great Scottish humour, great, great British humour, uh, Puss in Boots, the Sparky people, and so on. Now, in IPC... Yeah, there was uh, Leo Baxendale and Ken Reed, and they were way ahead of anybody else. But John and I, I think, always thought of them as, as in fact, as what they were. They were DC Thompson guys who'd moved to IPC uh, like ourselves. But for the most part, the whole attitude could be summed up by uh, the, 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 the humor comics were known as, um, what was it, uh, the Fleetway Fun Factory. And that's what it was. It literally was a factory. I, I won't go into lurid details about it. I probably have in the past. Um, but it was like a factory. And, and like any factory, that's not a very pleasant way to do things. You know, there's no staring out the window there. Um, and then when it came to the uh, Boys Adventure comics, we're talking early 70s now. They'd obviously had some incredible heyday, uh, which is looked on with enormous affection by people, before my time. And by the time we were there, uh, they were in big trouble. Um, in other words, between, say, 1972 to, I don't know, 1975, their circulations were, were, were dropping like stones because they were no longer innovating. They, they were no longer holding their audience. And the style of storytelling uh, had become very processed and this all takes us back to a core issue, which is unless you have enormous personal integrity, like Leo Baxendale and Ken Reed, where you say, despite the onerous system, I'm still going to produce works of art, that doesn't apply to anybody else or, or to very few other people. What they say is, OK, the system's ripping me off, so I'm going to rip off the system. And if you look at comics from that era, you can see that the classic thing in Valiant would be, uh, the, 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 the hero would end falling off a cliff at the end of one episode. And the, the tagline would say, uh, you know, what will happen to him now? Don't miss next week's Valiant. And of course, beginning of the, the next Valiant, he somehow heroically uh, reaches that uh, ubiquitous branch sticking out from the side of a cliff, swings on it. You have a, uh, he, he's safe for a, for a couple of moments. And then um, there's a, maybe a fraction of story, because it's a two-page story. And then he ends up in another cliffhanger, you know, where this time a, a car is going to run him over. 
And, you know, it's taking the piss out of the readers, that kind of storytelling. There's no substance to it. And uh, so John and I, when we, we, we saw all this at close quarters, and I remember uh, two of us looking at each other and, you know, we were quite depressed about it. Oh, my God, what have we gotten into? Because, OK, yeah, it gave us financial security. And relatively speaking, it was much better paid than DC Thompson's. But, you know, it's not very good for the soul. Now, the girls' comics, by comparison, were going through an incredible uh, revolution, which was primarily DC Thompson's inspired. Uh, so they were modeling themselves on Bunty, but in, in, in what you might call a classic creative tradition, they were looking at the opposition and then going beyond it. And that's what happened with Tammy. Bunty was fantastic, um, but it was quite irregular in places. It went through weird patches, whereas Tammy was consistently hard-hitting and emotional. And I believe um, uh, was was a was a better um, commercial success. So exciting times, and I mean all these kind of comics, of course. Um, you know, people today, you know, they've. They've all grown up on them, and they left a lasting impression on many of them. So that's why I'm uh, very enthusiastic about popular culture. Um, if you write some uh, something that can be, what should we say, uh, Guardian approved, I mean, who are you going to reach? You know, 2,000 readers if, you, if you're lucky. Um, it, it's not the same. It, reaching an audience is important. Yeah, I, th I think it's interesting. There seemed to be some sort of comics Cold War going on between, you know, IPC and uh, and DC Thompson's. But I think you're right. They were all mainstream titles and the sales. I mean, if you got those sales these days, a publisher would be delighted, you know. Yeah. And, but, but do you think it was because... Um, because of that more down-to-earth nature of the of the storytelling, that that appealed to people who just casually pick up you know, comics rather than go out their way to pick them up? Um, that's, an, that's an interesting question. Um, the stories uh, had to have a certain instant appeal. Um, in other words, so one of the things with the weekly comic was that uh, the storytelling would often be at a frenetic pace because um, the, the, the reader has other options they don't anymore <laughs> 2080 is it so uh, um but back then uh, you know it's like well if i didn't like warlord this week i'll go and read battle so you know the stories had a certain intensity uh, about them um but and i think often what you might call um fan orientated comic fiction would regard itself as superior uh, because the pace is more leisurely, um, they would probably say uh, the stories can be more sophisticated and so on and so forth. Um, but what I would argue with considerable passion, I think, is that um, the popular culture comics that uh, I'm talking about here are actually superior to the kind of... Um, comics, let us say that, uh, I don't know, The Guardian would uh, uh, approve of. I, I'm sorry to keep using the word Guardian, but it, it has, a, has a kind of widespread application. If I say the kind of comics that 
um, Paul Gravette would prefer, uh, a lot of your audience will go, well, who's Paul Gravette? Whereas if I say Guardian readers, that you know, it's a shorthand way of saying things. It is a bit unfair. Uh, but uh, anyway, the, uh, the, the, with popular culture stories, they have to obey the principles of storytelling. And those principles of storytelling uh, go back to Aristotle. Uh, is it Aristotle they go back to? I think so. Yeah, he, he wrote a guide to these things. And, uh, um, and uh, so, so there, there are underlying rules. So when, if you like, intellectuals say, well, that, 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 that's all a little bit in your face and so on, that's because that's what human beings, that's what we like. Now, of course, you can, it can become too downbeat and it can become, you know, the trick is to follow the rules, which is that we, uh, you know, we need to identify with a hero or heroine. We need to become emotionally engaged and um, it doesn't necessarily have to be a fight of uh, good against evil, but there, there, you know, there should be something learned there, there, uh, and there should be some kind of emotional journey. And all those things are in the principles of storytelling. And I can tell you, I, I read a, a novel uh, fairly recently that was well regarded as literature. And, uh, you know, it. It can get away with so much because it doesn't necessarily have to follow those examples I've given. And it can meander and it can go all over the place and so on. And you think, well, does that make it better? And I think the problem, the disappointment, if you like, at the moment is that we've largely lost our popular culture mass audience is still there in, in a reduced form on, on 2000 AD and it's combined um, uh, with um, uh, what you might call a fandom audience and, and they've really become one and the same now which, which, is, which is a big relief because there was a period of time when they were like rival football teams and uh, so you know and, and most important of all it's understood that you know you 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 it should be possible to reach an audience, a, a 12 year old kid who's not particularly into comics and uh, let's say uh, a 35 year old guy who's uh, an expert on every American comic imaginable. It should be possible to reach both of them. And, and some stories I think do. Um, good example being Charlie's War, uh, which, um, you know, Reach, reaches a lot of people you know anyone can pick it up and say yeah I get it but it's still got a subtext and arguably it's still got a um, uh, what you might call an art message as well in other words it's not it's not disposable ephemera uh, which is how how the publisher at IPC once uh, described the comics he produced which is quite unfortunate <laughs> No, it's interesting you, you pick up on, on Charlie's War. I mean, when I was a kid reading that, I actually I actually learned all my, my World War One history from that comic. The textbooks that were given out of the schools in Scotland anyway were pretty poor. And I think I only passed my my uh, O-grade history because of Charlie's War, uh, if I'm oh, being wow. honest with you. You know, it was that, to me, it was that accessible, um, but it was factually correct as well as being entertainment and i think that was the interesting that you crossed those you know you crossed over those both sides a bit like you're talking about the fan market and the mainstream audience and it must have been quite difficult 
to get that to fly in the first place because let's face it battle was probably aimed at you know what 12 year old kids or around about 12 yeah, to 14 yeah. you know so that um even at the time when i was reading it i thought this is a bit different this isn't what i've read before or seen before or you know certainly i hadn't seen anything like that in warlord or or victor uh the, the scottish papers you know so to me it was it was a it was kind of like a, a landmark uh a moment when i when i first picked up battle and, and and read charlie's war and I, I don't know what you think about the new collections part but i think they've done a fantastic job of yeah reproducing them wonderful abs- absolutely wonderful and the thing that i particularly like about them i mean beautiful as the titan editions were the covers as i said to them many times over the years are quite gloomy they are and they are aimed at an adult audience and what i like about the uh the covers of the uh, new rebellion editions is they're aimed at everybody but they will appeal to kids and I, i've seen this graphically in france where with the french editions of uh, charlie's war where they use bright primary colors uh i've actually seen 12 year old kids kind of home in on it you know what i mean they, and they kind of like you know you're on one side of the the counter and they're on the other and they're kind of leafing through it and you're thinking you know they're kind of looking at you think who are you and they don't know who the hell i am and uh uh and, and they go oh, I, oh yeah i'll come back and you think yeah they're not really going to buy it and then a few minutes later they come back to their dad and, <laughs> and 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 they buy them and and that happened several times at a french convention and it was obvious that the you know because if you have these these gloomy covers it, it it's 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 you know, it's it's acting with a different vibe, and so I'm delighted with the rebellion covers, which I uh, perhaps is wishful thinking on my part, but they appear to have a very tiny white poppy on them, which I'm also delighted about because uh, I mean, wh- this is another thing with Charlie's War, of course. Um, when the series came out originally, um, it wasn't unique in terms of being uh, an anti-war. Uh, story there, there there was a you know it's part of the culture of that time but in today's world uh, Charlie's War actually assumes far more importance and significance than I would ever have thought possible because there ain't nothing else like it out there and I probably you probably are aware of this that I, I did a, a special study and lecture on it at, uh, at Liverpool University uh, because I, 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 to begin with, I thought, no, I'm imagining this. And then I looked and over during the centenary years, there has been a media blackout on anything that's anti-war. So, um, yeah, I mean, if you've got uh, Blackadder Goes Forth on, uh, on DVD, of course you can watch it, but you won't see it on, you wouldn't have seen it on terrestrial uh, television, um, as far as I'm aware, up to date. And generally speaking, things like, oh, what a lovely war and so on, were not shown in the centenary years and were actually um, uh, trashed uh, by the, um, uh, forgotten the guy's name, one of the Tory cabinet uh, ministers said it was, oh, what a lovely war was uh, just for old hippies or something. And uh, I watched the uh, relaunch of it uh, at its original theatre and uh, the audience was uh, it was packed uh and i think uh, a good 50% of the audience were probably under 25 so 
you know, this attempt to kind of dismiss um, uh, anything anti-war as, oh, that's the, <laughs> that's the Vietnam War generation, I think was the, uh, you know, this is actually about Vietnam, not about World War One. No, it's not. It's about World War One, and it's about the crimes of the deep state against uh, uh, the British people. And uh, so, no, now, today, uh, Charlie's War is actually more important than it really should have been. Because there should be, well, first of all, there should be other comic stories that have a similar tone. Uh, you know, in other words, more like, uh, say, uh, Tardy or, or, or something like that. Um, and, of course, there should be more things like Blackadder Goes Forth, uh, and particularly with relevance to modern wars. Uh, but there aren't. So, it, it, you know, you, you, really, you really become aware of it once you actually start... Uh, looking at things and, um, you know, I mean, for, for instance, in the case of Charlie's War, uh, there's been considerable media interest in either um, documentaries about it or um, uh, a television production. It was optioned uh, uh, and um, uh, Radio 4 and people like that. But in every instance, you get the initial interest from, um, uh, let's say, a researcher or... Um, or a young producer, and then when it, as it were, goes upstairs, suddenly it goes cold. And to begin with, you think, well, that's just that's just the way the, the cards fall. But when it happens about eight times, you think, hang on a minute, there's something going on here. And uh, so, yeah, so Charlie's War is, is now really precious, which uh, it never should have been. You know, there should have been lots of things like Charlie's War. Yeah, it really is unique, and I, I totally agree about the new covers. They feel... It feels like a comic, and I, I'm not meaning that in a disrespectful yeah. way. I think it, that's that's the way that, that I grew up with it. And I think when you try and... I'm not saying that the Titan editions were trying to dress it up as something else, but there's an element of of it fitting in on a bookshelf rather than a comic shelf. I think so. I, I think so, yeah, ab absolutely. And 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 also the, the other thing, I mean, this is purely a, a, a marketing error, but... You see, it, it, because the spines all look the same, people think there's only one volume. You know what I mean? In other words, you, you've got to look really closely to see it's there's a you know it's a tiny volume two and three and so forth. Whereas with the rebellion editions, you know you're using uh, strong colours to differentiate each volume. So when I'm looking for them on my bookshelf, I can spot them instantly. You know, I can see ah right, I need to look at volume three and pick up on something but and the other good thing about about it from um from an art point of view uh is you because a lot of the um the artwork was um uh re you know reshot rephotographed or whatever the phrase is um you can really get the uh the artist detailed uh, and of course I mean, yourself as an artist I mean you must be more mesmerized than I am as a writer because I have no, no no ambitions to draw, and if I if I did, I'd pretty much lose them after looking at Joe's art. I mean, you think? How, I mean, he did three pages of this every week, and you know, it's th th there's so much there's so much love in it, and uh, I think perhaps uniquely on on Charlie's War, um, I think Joe understood human beings uh, like like a great actor, you know, when a, when a really great actor takes on a role and he puts something of himself into it and, you, and he understands the emotions and, 
and everything. And and if you look at the the emotions on on uh, uh, people's faces, are uh, you've got to have a real love and a real understanding of human beings, I think, to be able to do that. And all too often, I think, certainly on the early stages of 2000 AD, um, you know, artists just weren't that experienced. So the characters always <laughs> uh, just scowled at the reader. You know, they had this kind of grim look, uh, which, which, of course, actually the readers liked for the most part. Um, but uh, with Charlie's War, no, you have this, it's like going to the movies sometimes. With some episodes, you think, my God, I, you know, it's just like I've been on watching something on Netflix. Yeah, it's really interesting. It's something that we teach in the, the animation course and to, to a certain extent body language as well in the comics courses, but acting skills for, you know, for the actual animators or the creators to, to actually tap into to, to, that, to those emotions and, and to actually look at your facial expressions. But, but Joe just seemed to have that uh, naturally, it seemed. Yeah, it's, it's beyond... Um... It's beyond uh, the, the, the kind of standard thing, you know, the artist's mirror, you know, where, where the artist is gurning, <laughs> looking at himself. That must be a really weird process. I, I'm so glad I'm not an artist. <laughs> you know, you're doing a story involving lots of facial expression. You've got to keep staring at yourself in the mirror. My God, that must be quite weird. Um, uh, but, yeah, he, he really captured those very subtle expressions and uh, yeah, he, I, I'm assuming it, it was because, um, you, you know, he was a senior artist, you know. But I think even if you looked at his early work, I, I suspect even if you went back uh, a couple of decades to, say, Football Family Robinson or, or even, earlier, um, even earlier times, um, there would still be that great... Uh, it, it, it's bordering on caricature, but it's not. So it's it's on the right side of caricature. So they're not cartoony, and uh, they have these great expressions. The the other artist I always uh, rave about, um, who I think has so much, um, uh, you know, it, it's so much to sort of uh, to pass on to to, to new artists, is uh, John Armstrong on Tammy. Um, uh, with Moonchild in my case, but also Bella, both coming out from um, uh, Rebellion. And, um, you know, he, he had this mastery of facial expression. And he did tell me it was because he really, you know, studied his subject matter. I mean, I think he had, a, had an artist model for Bella. Uh, but generally speaking, he really, he put the hours in. In other words, uh, uh, there was no magic trick here. <laughs> he just he, he just put put the time in at the coal face, and and maybe that was true for for Joe as well. Um, you know, uh, I mean, it, it's certainly on the writing side. It was one of the challenges for me was um, um, finding uh, learning how to express emotion in a in a legitimate way, because obviously these are all men in the trenches. Uh, so they're not going to, um, you know, they're not going to, uh, you know, react like a like a like New Age men, shall we say? But some, you know, is to convey their feelings and, you know, their their bitterness, their sorrow, their anger, and probably above all else, because um, that was the, the the main symptom of war then as now, um, is to suppress their emotions. And I, I suppose. 
I guess I must have captured some of that at least. But I mean, that that's probably the worst of it, really, isn't it? If you think about it, all our, you know, all our forefathers went to these terrible conflicts and then they came back afterwards. And, uh, you know, the classic line is, we'll never tell them. And, and they, they're just like, no, I don't want to talk about that. And, oh, it was a long while ago. I, I've forgotten about it. But all those emotions must have been seething beneath the, the surface. Yeah, yeah. No, I think um, I think it's really it's really interesting that the the comics these days are, are much more stylized. I would say there's certainly more stylized art, whereas there's a there's a realism about the art back in the seventies and, and and maybe early eighties as well that actually is is quite tricky to pull that off because if you go too real, then it could get quite graphic. Uh, in the depiction of some of the scenes but I think um, Joe managed to tread the balance between you know going too far with that and still doing comic art and still getting out the door every week and I think for me what made it interesting was how consistent it was and actually a lot of other strips at the time would have fill-in artists if the artist fell behind and as far as I'm aware it didn't happen on the weekly strip I know a couple other artists did some annual work um, some one-offs on Charlie's War. I think Cam Kennedy did a couple of episodes for for an annual. Um, but but that that run of of art, consistent art. I think that's something that is uh, that makes it stand out as well. It's very it's very important. It make it makes a huge difference to things. And uh, uh, I, I've almost been lamenting this because I've just been uh, just writing the first section of uh, uh, the Secret History of Slain. Uh, now, Slain was as uh, guilty of this as um, uh, Judge Dredd and many other uh, 2000 AD stories was that, uh, uh, you know, it had multiple artists. And uh, so you don't get that continuity, that continuity of thought, that there's continuity of subtext. And uh, um, yeah, the, the, the stories suffer for it. And perhaps uh, Dredd overcame it perhaps better than Slain because... Uh, the main character is so regimented visually uh, in style and, and uh, that you can almost get away with the uh, different artists. But I think at the end of the day, yeah, we, we you know, as consumers, we, we really want um, one artist, one writer, this multiplicity. I, I, I think there are very few cases, I'm trying to think of one, uh, where it's actually a, a good thing. I mean, yeah, there, there are occasions where uh, a new writer, an artist come along and revive something, uh, but it's quite rare. Frank Miller on Dark Knight, perhaps, but, uh, and, and Alan Moore maybe on Swamp Thing, but, but that was a long while ago. And I, and I think for the most part, um, having house characters where there's a kind of free-for-all, um, it doesn't do the characters any good. Um, uh, it, it's better because, you know, you, you, the, the writer's soul, the artist's soul, they're, they're kind of injected into the characters. And, and when someone else takes over, I mean, they're, they're left with a, um, a, a difficult choice. Either they're going to try and copy Joe, uh, let's say, or copy me. And, you know, copying someone else is not a good thing. Or they're going to try and find their own identity and the readers are going to say, in effect, well, that isn't what I'm buying the story for. You know, yeah, I mean, you, you, you've done a good job there, perhaps. But, um, you know, I'm not interested in your angle. Um, 
I think Judge Dredd perhaps has managed to transcend that, but it's a, God, it's a, it's a difficult process. And speaking for myself, I, I still only subscribe to uh, John Wagner's Dreads because they have that original flavour to them that I found addictive at the time. And, um, I, you know, I, I, it doesn't feel the same when it comes from someone else. That No one's saying anything that, uh, at least where I'm concerned, is has the same magic to it. Yeah, I think it would be really difficult now to get an artist to commit to doing five years on one project. I, mean, <laughs> I know. That would be, I mean, I, I can't think of anything, in, you know, usually well, it goes that, in cycles. Well, that's true. But then again, it also comes back to the whole all right situation. Because if you consider in France, I mean, my God, there's people who live and die doing one, one strip. And of course, they can afford to do that because... Um, because they, you know, they they own the character in conjunction with the publisher. You know, they have that extra commitment to it. So, for instance, uh, on uh, on my series Requiem, uh, we're up to volume eleven. I, 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 there's been a hiatus these last few years because uh, uh, because of difficulties with the publisher, rather than because the artist didn't want to do it. Uh, and he'll be coming back onto it uh, shortly. Uh, I hope. But when it when the first sto first story arc is complete, it will be thirteen volumes. Now, if you consider he was doing one volume a year, um, you know that so it's it's thirteen years of his life. That's a, that's a, so yeah, it, it does seem odd in British terms, and I think in American terms, where they're endlessly changing the creative teams. But of course, what Americans often big up. The, uh, comics, but my understanding uh, at the box office is that the world number one is manga, uh, which is a law unto itself. France is number two. Uh, America is number three. So in other words, French comic sales are, are massive, but there's still that, um, still that kind of resistance to them in the Anglo-Saxon world. Um, which is a pity. I mean, there are things that, that, that need improving in French comic books, but my God, I mean, they, they were the inspiration, in my case, for, for 2000 AD. And uh, I always make a point of saying this, that, um, you know, 2000 AD, I, I think, essentially, uh, was inspired by European comics. Yeah, I think I think you're spot on there. It's basically, yeah, I was looking at it from a UK and a US perspective, I suppose, that to get that commitment, and I think it's to do with the the work for hire mentality and not, yeah. you know, having having the rights. And I was, I was going to ask you that next, actually, about you know creators' rights or creators' credits. And I read your column in uh, Comic Scene, the uh, issue zero, uh, with interest, um, talking about when a, a comic character should die. And I know that you you feel quite strongly about this and it's interesting when you're looking at the current scene of reviving you know past stories uh maybe you could elaborate a bit on on that if you if you feel sure <laughs> yeah yeah um i mean it, it's it's a wide subject but i mean in broad terms if you look in um in the world of text novels um you have conan doyle wrote Sherlock Holmes, Ian Fleming wrote James Bond, and there have been attempts to uh, have other writers uh, do novels in, in, in the same style. 
But as far as I'm aware, they haven't really registered. And, you know, if I, if I wanted to read Sherlock Holmes, of course I'd go back to the original and the same with James, with, uh, James Bond and so on. And I think that's, that, that's true for uh, uh, comic books as well, that the, uh, you know, you have uh, a classic like Watchmen um, is really something written by someone as homage to Alan's writing. Is it really going to resonate the same? Uh, and or uh, thankfully, uh, because I'm so militant and, and very aggressive on the subject, um, uh, no one has ever uh, really uh, tried to do that where I'm concerned. And, and one of the reasons the, the, the uh, Rebellion uh, publishers told me is because my particular storytelling style is, uh, has such a, I think they use the word like unique voice, um, that, that, that's why others stay away. Uh, and, and I think that's good that they do. And, and of course, it is very deliberate on my part. I often have stories take certain twists and turns, mindful of the fact that in, you know, in, in decades to come, when I'm, when I'm long gone, someone will think, ah, oh, I wonder if I could, I could do that. And I think, right, I'll really make this hard for the bastard. Because, you know, it, you know, we, we, we should be developing. I mean, if you consider how uh, politically aware everyone is today, I mean, okay, some political correctness is, is, is wretched, but for the most part, there is a sensitivity about so many things, and we really need to be sensitive about, well, this is someone's, someone else's creation, and, and uh, we, we, we should honour it. And uh, I certainly uh, regret um, times when I didn't follow that rule, and I... I put it down to, well, that, that was, if you like, 20th century thinking. But we're now in the 21st century. And, and the irony is it's actually better for publishers. It, it would be better for publishers if everyone was, um, you, you know, much more committed to their characters because they would know if um, uh, they would get a better rights deal. So it, it means you put more passion into it. Uh, I, I've just been um, uh, just writing about the the first episode of uh, Slain and uh, Angela's role, my, my ex, uh, who, who created it. And uh, uh, just adding up the number of weeks she put into it, it was something like, uh, oh, uh, offhand, I think it was about three months. In other words, from the time she did her first sketches to the time her episode one uh, appeared in 2000 AD. And some of that might be because she was, a, you know, a, a new artist and all the rest of it, but not that much. In other words, there was a, a whole... Now, you can't, especially in this day and age, you can't give three months to creating a character that someone else, can, a publisher, can say, well, thanks very much, but we don't need you anymore. <laughs> and we're now going to give it to somebody else to draw. Um, you, you can't do that. Uh, I mean, you, know, you can't put three months development into things. Um, and uh, so, you know, the, the, these are challenges. Of course, another challenge, I, uh, coming back to Dundee, um, an important thing, I think, about the comic landscape then was, and it's another reason why the sales were so high, um, the, both publishers, both DC Thompson's and IPC, were using Spanish, South American, and Italian artists. And they were significantly, they were never using French artists because, of course, in France they have a proper rights deal. 
But because of the exchange rate of the whatever it was, the peseta against the uh, a pound at that time, um, if uh, a Spanish artist was was paid in, uh, in in pounds, he would make a fortune for his work. And so as a result, you had world class artists working on what would be seen as a very lowbrow publication like Romeo. So you had Esteban Morotto, uh, this fantastic guy, um, you know, world world class, doing a series called um, The Secret War of Nicola Brown about the Crimean War. And then you had another uh, artist, um, Buzelli, uh, doing a regular every week strip. Now, this is a guy who I think went on to have a, quite a famous career as a uh, as an erotic uh, um, uh, comic artist. But once again, um, world class. And uh, I mean, that time has gone, of course. Um, I, I, I think it's very unlikely that, uh, uh, you know, a Spanish artist today, when he works out the exchange rate between the pound and the euro, he's going to say, no, I'm, I'm not interested, <laughs> you know, no, forget it. Um, but that really changed the landscape. I mean, we, we were terribly spoiled by these absolutely brilliant artists. I, I have heard that there have been attempts to go to, what shall we say, uh, South America or, or what would be called, you know, third world countries to try and get cheap artists. But, you know, we're in a bit of a global village now, so I don't, I don't know how easy that would be. Yeah, I think it, it's interesting about, you know, you know creators holding on to their best ideas because why would you give it away for you know for 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 nothing really you know and i think we're seeing that with our students coming through that they are they're more likely to look at kickstarting their own idea or that they've started on the course or that they've had you know uh, even out with the course and, and 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 to have that you know that that um ownership and they could do what we, they want with it they don't have to you know, change their, you know, um, viewpoint or, you know, because an editor doesn't like it or, you know, and it, and it does actually liberate the artists and writers on our courses, I think. Yeah, I, th I think that's something very important you said there. I think it has its upside and its downside because, of course, what it means is, uh, yeah, they, they are liberated and, and that's great. And I think Kickstarter and, and the web generally uh, has liberated all of us and, and actually I think in many instances I mean it's great to hear your students have but uh, speaking for my peers I, I think a lot of them haven't actually cast off their chains yet <laughs> it will come as no surprise to you that, <laughs> that I have <laughs> you know, I've got this, <laughs> this you know because you can't keep complaining about the system and then you have an opportunity to you know throw away your chains and, <laughs> and, and make a burst for freedom so I've certainly been doing that the, the, the downside to it, of course, is that um, it means that uh, uh, outside yourself, from a tutorial point of view, they may not get the uh, commercial criticism that some of them might need. I mean, there are commercial tricks of the trade and so on. And you're absolutely right that a lot of editorial criticism can be subjective, personal, or you just got a lousy, a lousy editor who just doesn't happen to like you very much and goes, no, that's rubbish. Take it away. Draw it again. You know, you're on a power trip. And yeah, the, the fact that uh, uh, your students can be freed from that is wonderful because then they can say, oh, sod you. OK, I'll, I'll, 
I'll do a Kickstarter and uh, you, you know, and 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 do it myself. I think the rider to that, uh, and it's a really important mechanism. I don't know whether it uh, uh, comes within the remit of your course or not. Um, uh, there's, there's meant to be three M's in, in publishing, uh, management, uh, money, and marketing. Um, well, I guess if you're managing your own story and you're, and, you know, you're going to uh, an art college, you're getting a, uh, a certain amount of, um, of, of you know, control there, which is important. In other words, feedback on what you're doing. Uh, money... Um, that's not, thanks to the internet, it still costs money to put your stuff out there, um, but that's not, the, it's not as bad as it was. I mean, in the past, uh, you know, I can think of publishers who, who uh, you know, would, would mortgage their apartment to, to, to bring out, um, um, you know, a graphic novel or something. So if you're doing it all digitally, uh, you know, just to get, uh, you know, the first few, uh, you know, feet up the rungs of the ladder, um, that, that should be possible. But that leads me to the third one of these three M's. And, and these three M's, I remember reading about this, um, somebody back in the days of Eagle was talking, original Eagle was talking in these terms. But marketing, my God, that is a magical art where digital is concerned. Um, uh, you know, uh, Lisa, my partner, is, uh, I think, rapidly having to become an expert on this stuff because it, it's... You know, whether you advertise on Facebook, whether you whether you uh, advertise on Twitter, um, you, you know, you can't just... I think there was a sense in the past for, for all creators, and I think artists and writers were probably just as bad as each other. You know, you, you put your book out there and you say, right, somebody buy it, please. You can't do that anymore. You And so you've got all these other things that you can do, you know, you, you, you can have uh, media adverts, you, you know, media interviews, newspapers, and so on. And we've actually found that um, uh, things like Facebook uh, are actually the most powerful uh, marketing tools. In other words, you know, building up a, an audience there and, and so on. But they're, they're, it is an art form. It's a skill in and all of itself. And uh, as I say, Lisa's surrounded by all these expert books on the subject, uh, and uh, there's a lot to learn, and the landscape keeps shifting as well. In other words, you say, okay, this is how to make uh, make money on Facebook, and then Facebook changed the rules. <laughs> well, I think, I think that's interesting, that use of social media. I think you're, I totally agree. It's the marketing and getting your book out there, or at least recognised out there in this big market that there is now is actually the biggest challenge and it's the biggest challenge uh, my students have as well some of them are, are really in tune with that and and they're, they're really in tune with how to use social media in a positive way it's used negatively quite a lot i have to say in other yeah. fields but i think in comics generally and obviously there's these you know instances where it all flares up and there's controversy but uh, generally i think the students who, who succeed that i teach are ones who use social media in a positive manner uh, and that comes back to marketing yeah and, and and i think it also comes back to the tradition of your art college which i i, I remember uh uh way back uh was very grounded you know i can remember in the 70s you know hearing about duncan of uh, jordanston and everything and um and how grounded it was. And uh, 
and this would be perhaps by comparison with, uh, say, some other art colleges around at the time that were perhaps more avant-garde. But there was a sense that your art college really had its uh, feet on the ground. So it's great that that tradition is still there. That you know that that's still um, there's still that awareness because it would be very easy. And, and and of course the thing is there are going to be all these abuses of the system, aren't there? I mean, if they haven't happened already, they will do. So you're going to get some really far out artist who's going to what do they call it? Is it Patreon? Um, yeah. So he's going to he or she is going to put their work out on Patreon, and they're going to go, wow, this is this is really weird stuff. I'm I'm imagining a successor to John Hicklinton, you know, and you know anyone who draws with that lunacy, they're going to get a following, and and. I mean, Johnny would have had a following on Patreon, definitely. And I, I, I don't think I'm disrespecting his memory to say it would probably still have ended in tears. You know what I mean? Because it, it, it's, you have some artists who are really over the top. And if, if they suddenly get this huge following on, on something like Patreon or something, and then, and then they come up against some normal commercial force and they say, that's not quite right. You really need to do that again. <laughs> it's all going to get very colourful, shall we say. If, if, if my past experience on these things is anything to go by. But, you know, what, what I'm looking for, um, and, and I guess we all are, um, is someone, it could be one of your students, it's going to be someone out there, is going to uh, get the marketing right, is going to get the product right, and suddenly you're going to get a, a Dark Knight or a Watchman or a Charlie's War or a Martial Law or whatever as a runaway success. And when it happens, we're all going to be following, what did he or she do? <laughs> and how can I have some of that, you know? Because we're all trying different combinations and we, we're probably all just, you know, jogging along and, and having some success. But there's an awareness that there is a huge market out there. Now, that, uh, as you're doubtless aware, the... Um, the text uh, novel market has really boomed digitally. There's, there's authors, you know, not just the Shades of Grey uh, author, but you know many others who have really big successes, and they've never have been considered by paper publishers uh, because probably because there would be a certain snobbishness. You know, in other words, uh, oh, you can't say this or that or the other, um, and they have runaway successes. Um, so that, that has to come to comics. Um, uh, I, I mean, it'd be interesting to... Uh, comicsology, for example, I suppose, is... You see, in Britain, a lot of people don't seem to like comicsology. I mean, we have, we have Requiem on com comicsology, but we actually get more sales, I think, on Kindle Fire, which people seem more... Um, or, or seem equally happy with, let's say. Comicsology seems more aimed at the States, perhaps. Yeah, I've, I've seen that as well, actually. It's a, there's a certain resistance to it. I'm not quite sure why. It's maybe maybe too corporate. I don't know. Well, of course, yeah. Well, that, that, of course, is the same with Kindle Fire. Everything everything is Amazon. I mean, Comixology still has its own uh, kind of team when they were their own uh, bosses, and then they got taken over by Amazon. But they, they still have their own separate voice, and they are actually quite good to um, to, to, to work with. Um, and I suppose, arguably, there, there's other companies who, who can um, uh, start up and, and, and do the same kind of thing. But there, there, there hasn't been 
to my knowledge, uh, a runaway digital comic success, at least in the UK and possibly not in the States either. I think we all of us done reasonably well with this and that and the other, but not a huge success. But that must happen eventually. Um, uh, but yeah, no one, no one's quite got the formula yet. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I was going to ask about about the future of comics. I mean, do you see it? Do you see it moving on from where it is at the moment? And what direction do you think it would go? And what What would you say? To, did you think when you were in Dundee in the seventies that you would a still be writing comics now, and b that comics would would take off in such a, a such a global way? I suppose. Um. Yeah. Um, I, I, I suppose I thought I would move on uh, because everyone treated comics as a stepping stone to something else. And because the, the, the page rates weren't very good and uh, well, you didn't even get credits on your work or anything like that. So for, for many years, I think I, I suppose my, a lot of my energies were devoted to getting out <laughs> and, uh, uh, obviously not entirely succeeding. Um, uh, but then I suppose somewhere in the middle of that, having realised that I, I didn't actually like the way comics were, I kind of, I suppose, in effect, I uh, kind of um, uh, recreated them in my image rather than in someone else's. So in other words, well, 2000 AD is how I'd like comics to be. So that actually makes it... Um, bearable to be to remain inside the, uh, the the media and then of course I suppose in the course of the 80s it uh, um, you know became you know this this uh, actually a really cool job to have but uh, you know I had my feet on the ground for so long I, I didn't really get taken in by any of that bullshit kind of thing um, in terms of where uh, where comics are going I mean Obviously, there's a, that whole digital spectrum. I, I don't know I have anything else to add on that. I, I think it actually um, still comes back to individuals. And what I'm, I find myself endlessly searching for is artists with the same high standards as um, Joe Cahoon on Charlie's War or Kevin O'Neill on, on Nemesis. And uh, very occasionally I find them, and uh, even more occasionally I manage to persuade the editor to uh, uh, let me work with them. And uh, so um, for me, it's a kind of personal future, which I think is actually relevant because um, we often think of, uh, I suppose, most media things, you know, that there's a trend, you know, science fiction films are in or Westerns are out or whatever it is. But I think certainly where British comics are concerned, it, it's still a very personal business. And, you know, one individual uh, can really change things. So uh, two examples come to mind. Um, one is Faye Dalton, uh, who we had this competition for. Uh, I was doing a rant at, um, uh, at some event and talking about uh, um, how um, uh, women were not represented enough in comics and girls' comics have this huge potential, blah, blah, blah. And there was a, a female art agent in the audience. And uh, to my astonishment, she said, well, why don't we have a, why don't we ha have a competition, a £1,000 prize to find 
uh, an artist who can uh, who can uh, match these kind of criteria that you're looking for. And so we did, and Faye Dalton won it. And anyone who looks up her work on uh, on her website uh, will see just what an amazing artist she is. And although she's been uh, uh, very very successful, you know, she's done work for the um, uh, Ian Fleming estate on Casino Royale and, and lots of stuff. Um, I found it, I could not get her, uh, or personally, I couldn't get her into comics. And I was really gutted by that because I, when I saw her work, I thought, my God, this is, this is another Glenn Fabry. This is another Brian Bolland. And uh, many readers would agree with me. Um, but yeah, I couldn't crack it that time. But I have another one. <laughs> <laughs> who, uh, who I think I have cracked it with. So for me, the excitement of it is finding a finding an artist that I can work with and say, and who I think can show things that can inspire me, because that often doesn't happen. You, because unfortunately, again, it comes back to the all right situations. You get very competent, very talented artists, but they're because they don't own. The product that they're, they're only going to give it seven out of ten, and um, what I always look for um, is ten out of ten, and that's what I try and give it myself. Um, uh, I, I think because if I tried to give it seven out of ten, um, which I probably could get away with, um, it, I, I'd feel depressed. You know, if you don't give your very very best. You think, why am I doing this? You know, <laughs> what's the point of it all? So you've really got to get carried away by it. You, you've got to, you've got to really immerse yourself. But in order to do that, you do need an artist like Joe Cahoon, which is why I endlessly lament how much I miss him and uh, and other great artists like uh, Kevin O'Neill and Glenn Fabry. So I, I found one. <laughs> I, I won't tempt fate by. Uh, saying more at this stage, but I think I think um, I think the deal is pretty much done, and um, uh, so I'm really excited about that. And uh, but it's actually harder now because in the past, uh, an artist of the quality of say Simon Bisley would kind of cross your desk, as it were, um, let's say every two or three years, um, or, or an artist of the quality of Faye Dalton. Um, but today it's more like <laughs> one every 10 years, you know, because they're all rightly going somewhere else. They're all saying, no, sod this. I'm not going through the 2018 Mincer. You know, I'm going to do my own Kickstarter and uh, to hell with you all. So, yeah, or, or they're going straight into computer games or something. So it hasn't got the lure that it once had where, you know, you, you, you think, my God, there's all these great artists out there and they all want to work for... 2008 not anymore and then when they do um you you, you know they, they they need sometimes uh, you know it needs a certain amount of marketing on my part uh, to get them in and i don't always succeed i'm afraid okay well that brings us quite up to date and maybe, maybe just end with asking you what what's on the, the cards next for you ah let's see <laughs> Um, 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 um. Well, I mean, I, I'm I'm in the middle of writing um, uh, 
the uh, Secret History of Slain. That's a text novel, a textbook, not a novel. <laughs> um, and um, so that's that's quite illuminating for me because you know I'm having to think back over you know what what Slain was all about and what was that era about. So that's uh, that's my uh, current project. Um, the uh, comics-wise, the immediate one on the horizon uh, is Defoe. Uh, without doing a kind of a spoiler alert, I think it's fair to say it's... Uh, uh, in the 17th century, there was an attempt... Uh, Defoe is a 17th century zombie hunter. And um, uh, at that time, uh, in the Renaissance, there, there was an attempt by scientists to seriously consider sending a man to the moon. Now, the, the possibilities of clock punk with sending someone to the moon uh, is amazing. And, and, you know, steampunk has been pretty heavily covered, I think, now. And it's a great uh, genre of science fiction to, to explore. But clock punk, by comparison, um, I, I can't really think of anybody else apart from myself who's really kind of gone on in for that era. Uh, so it's a lot of fun, you know, all, all these... Because what's happened is there's a renaissance in the uh, 17th century, which has made all these kind of technical possibilities available to people. So you actually have some guy, uh, a, Brit a British mission to the moon. Naturally, it has to be Britain. Britain's got to put its... plant its flag on the moon ahead of the... Uh, ahead of the, 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 the dastardly Dutch, you know, who... Uh, um, our bitter rivals, you know. <laughs> so, I, I, there's so much you can tell in a story like that. You can, you know, it can be funny, it can be science fiction, and it can also, of course, have a, uh, uh, you know, a social point. Because, you know, why, why are they spending millions trying to send a man to the moon in the 17th century when, you know, there's, there's plenty of problems back here on Earth? So, uh, uh, and of course, there's all sorts of other aspects to it. So I, I always enjoy these stories that have um, a number of levels that you can, uh, uh, you know, sort of explore and, and, and work out. Uh, you know, it, a multiplicity of levels, I think, is, is good for any story. I, I get bored if I see something that's just straightforward and, you know, and that's the end of it. Great. Well, thanks very much for your time, Pat. Uh, it's been really great to chat to you. It's a pleasure. Thanks very much. Okay. Cheers, Phil. Cheers. Bye. Bye.